0: Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And
1: I'm Bob Beck. Coming up on the show, we'll learn how the Wind River Reservations, two tribes are struggling with a shortage of housing and how that's leading to overcrowding.
0: How many actual families are living here? One, two, three. Three families? Yeah. Coal companies in the West have dug up an area the size of New York City to get to the coal underneath. Now, they're trying to put nature back together.
2: I challenge
1: you to predict what's reclaimed reclaim and what's natural. And we'll explore what makes western music western.
0: We'll also get an update on the delisting of the grizzly bear and learn why you should have hope for the Wyoming Cowboys football team this season. Those stories and more coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu/haub. Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And
1: I'm Bob Beck. The two tribes on the Wind River Indian Reservation are growing and prospering. The northern Arapaho is expected to reach 11,000 this year. The eastern Shoshone is almost 5,000 strong. But while the number of people has been expanding, the number of homes where all those people can live has not As the first part in her series on the reservation housing shortage, Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports that the situation has led to severe overcrowding and the social problems that come with that.
0: Northern Arapaho elder Kenneth Shakespeare has lived in this house north of Arapaho with its view of the mountains and fertile hayfields for a lot of years.
3: I'll say about 20-some years. Yeah. Yeah, I bought this land here when I was
1: working
0: He raised seven children here, but now he's in the early stages of dementia, and it's his kids' turn to take care of him. His daughter, Linnell gives me a tour of the four-bedroom, two-bath home she grew up in.
4: Yeah, so that's this room. This is his. Over here, and then is there somebody... My sister will stay stay every now and then, and that's where she sleeps Uh with her grandkids.
0: Plus, three of her children live here with their own families. To be clear, at any given time, between 10 and 13 people live with Kenneth Shakespeare. Linnell herself lives nearby and shares her home with another daughter and her family. But between the two households, there isn't a lot of income.
5: Right now, we're really hurting.
0: (laughs) Part of the problem is that Linnell hasn't been able to work the last couple years since she got cancer. Only two of the 17 people in these households is currently getting a paycheck right now. And when you add in her dad's Social Security... That's not much, but it's not just them. The medium household income on the reservation is only sixteen thousand, compared to the rest of Wyoming that earns fifty-four thousand, and that's with multiple families pooling their resources. So, my mom and dad were um in that room with um, that bunk bed and stuff. That's Linnell's eight-year-old granddaughter, Taya Dixie. I um, like to sew in there. Uh, I sew. I sold keychains and stuff. Linnell says it would be nice if Taya's family could move into a trailer they have on the property, but says that would cost $6,000 they don't have just to install an electrical pole. Linnell says one of her daughters is on the waiting list for low-cost tribal housing, but has been waiting for two years. But Linnell says even if you get it, it can be sketchy.
4: But you get to Rappel, oh, it's bad. Just drive through there and you'll look at the yards. Ain't really yards. They're just dirt. Dogs will take off after you. There's nothing they'll do about it if they bite you and hurt you.
0: And so for now, Linnell says her family prefers to live together and take care of their elders, even if it is crowded. Northern Arapaho Tribal Housing Director Patrick Goggles says many families make the same decision, even his.
3: A grandparent, parents, and the children, and maybe the older brother, that's not uncommon. Uh, We find that a cultural value that that enhances our family life.
0: But due to a high birth rate that Goggle says has led to a sudden population explosion on the reservation, that traditional lifestyle is strained, and the need for housing is greater than ever before.
3: We determined then we needed 600 units to meet the entire need.
0: But right now, there's only 230 units for the entire tribe. That means over 55% of the tribe could be categorized as homeless because they're couch surfing. Or aren't the primary owner or renter of the place where they sleep? Northern Arapaho tribal administrator Vonda Wells recently gave a talk at a Native health conference on the health effects of overcrowding. In a home where there's no space, where people are all trying to trying to find their own place, and there's nowhere to you know to relax, um, people get stressed, and they things happen. They start you know violence happens, and she says with more domestic violence comes chronic illness, hypertension, diabetes heart disease and she says overcrowding is especially hard on kids. One of the example would be, you know, this little boy who's sleeping on a bench. This child, you know, rolling up, maybe rolling off the bench, getting back up on there, laying down again, it being hard. Your body is, is sore. And then sending this child to school and then him, you know, trying to learn, trying to think about what his teacher's telling him and he's exhausted. Wells says going forward, tribal leaders have been brainstorming ways to eliminate overcrowding without giving up on multi-generational living. She says new housing designs should accommodate lots of families with six or ten bedrooms and lots of bathrooms. Tribal housing director Goggles shares that vision.
3: A vaulted ceiling that gives the living room and the kitchen a larger look, but it allows the family to have birthdays, ceremonies, we have wakes in our homes.
0: For the Shakespeare family, such a roomy kitchen would be great today. The family is drying elk meat. Oh, is this elk meat, dojo Elk meat. Drying it. Is there a hunter in the family? Is that right? But there is one big obstacle for tribes who want to design homes to better fit their cultural lives, and that's money. We'll explore how both tribes are tackling that problem and the responsibility of the federal government to help when our series on the reservation housing shortage continues on an upcoming program. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards.
1: Glancing at a satellite image of northeastern Wyoming, you can't miss the coal mines. The square-cornered gray blotches stretch north and south over more than 70 miles. But if all goes according to plan, someday, when the mining is done, those scars will disappear, erased from the landscape by intensive reclamation efforts. Coal companies are on the hook for that cleanup, but the industry's recent collapse has raised questions about whether they will actually come through. How big of a problem would it be if they didn't? Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce takes us behind the scenes of the complex, expensive process of cleaning up mining's legacy.
4: Standing on a platform looking down into one of the three active pits at Cloud Peak Energy's Antelope Mine near Douglas, engineering manager Blake Jones struggles to describe the scale of the mining operations in relatable terms.
6: To that that bluff over there, it's about four miles.
4: (laughs) The bluff marks the far side of the mine pit. The space in between is just a huge void. The coal seam is at the bottom of the pit, and in order to get to it, a fleet of shovels and trucks scraped away hundreds of feet of overlying dirt. It's hard to imagine this spot ever looking like it did before. But turning away from the pit, Jones points to a grassy hill behind us.
2: We mined through this area three years ago.
4: As in, through the hill. And then they put it back, more or less like it was. You built this hill. Absolutely. Cloud Peak literally moved a mountain. In fact, they're constantly moving mountains. As the mine progresses, the dirt scraped off the coal goes back into the part of the pit that's already been mined. And one truckload at a time, the gaping void is filled. But moving mountains back into place is just the beginning of the reclamation process. The rest? Rebuilding an entire ecosystem, starting with the plant.
2: Before we mine, the vegetation studies go through and document what are the native species and what density and what, uh, uh, how many sagebrush per square meter, and literally to that level of detail, and we go back and, and re-
4: redo that. There's also wildlife, water, soil, but we'll stick with the vegetation to keep things relatively simple. Where does all this vegetation come from? We uh, buy
2: seed and actually plant it, literally farm it back into, into the ground.
4: In Wyoming, the seed has to come from native grasses and flowers, plants that would have been here before mining ever started. And that's not the kind of thing you can just buy at your local hardware store.
6: So this is our seed barn, what we call the seed barn.
4: The Bridger Plant Materials Center in south-central Montana is one of a handful of plant material centers run by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Together, they're where most of the native plants used in mine reclamation originate. On the surface, it looks like just about any other farm, with guys riding around on tractors and fields.
7: He's cultivating this field of antelope,
3: slender white prairie clover.
4: The center is the first link in the reclamation process. The seed from its fields is sold to commercial growers, who then grow their own seed to sell to the mines for reclamation. Inside the main office, I meet Mark Majerus, a former director of the center who still volunteers. Majerus says when he started working here in the mid-'70s, no one was growing native plants for reclamation.
8: Companies would go out and find a spot, and, and uh, if it was a good seed year, then they would collect it and make that available to reclamation.
4: But hand-picking enough wild seeds to reclaim hundreds of square miles of mine lands wasn't practical. So over the last 40 years, the center has worked to develop farmable native grasses and flowers for reclamation.
8: It's problem solving, trying to figure out what species will work, what species, the economics is there so that
4: commercial growers can actually make a living at it. But having the right seed is just part of the equation. Majeris says mining companies also had to figure out the right way to replace topsoil and how to plant the seeds so they didn't blow away. You know, there's the
8: timing, the surface manipulation. If it's really dry, you might want to do some pitting and stuff to create little microclimates. And the mining companies have, have learned this process over the years, you know, strictly trial and error.
4: Today, mine reclamation is much more scientific than it was in the past and as a result, it fails less frequently. But Majerus says even with all that attention to detail, there's simply no way to artificially recreate the complexity of most native ecosystems.
8: You're, you're not gonna put it back exactly as
6: it was. I challenge you to predict
4: what's reclaimed reclaim and what's natural. Back at the antelope mine, Blake Jones and I are walking through an area covered in tall grasses and sagebrush. You can actually smell the sage. Smells good. Yeah. Watch for snakes, though. (laughs) As good as this hillside looks and smells, it is not reclaimed. Federal mining laws require 10 years of successful vegetation growth and the restoration of groundwater aquifers, among other things. This land, like more than 90% of the land that's been mined in Wyoming's Powder River Basin, is not there yet. In Wyoming alone, the work that's left to be done will likely cost upwards of $2 billion. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stephanie Joyce. Stay tuned. We'll be
0: talking with State Treasurer Mark Gordon and University of Wyoming Struck Professor Jason Shogren about the upcoming Sovereign Wealth Fund Forum. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards,
1: and I'm Bob Beck. Every year, a forum in honor of former Ambassador Tom Struck delves into an issue facing Wyoming. This year, the focus will be on the sovereign wealth funds, such as Wyoming's Permanent Mineral Trust Fund and Rainy Day accounts. State Treasurer Mark Gordon and University of Wyoming Struck Professor Jason Shogren joined me to discuss the upcoming Struck Sovereign Wealth Forum that will be held in Jackson. Chogren says they are bringing in experts to answer some important questions. How much money do
5: we want to have in our rainy day accounts? And how much do we want to have as a state in our sovereign wealth funds? And how do we transform a stock of rocks, essentially, and gas into a stock of money that the folks in the state of Wyoming can use for their public services? And so we are bringing in five panelists from around the world to talk to us about how they've dealt with it in New Zealand, how they dealt with it in Saudi Arabia, how they, Hong Kong, um, Alaska, and also um, uh, an expert on the Norwegian fund.
1: Jay, it seems like one of the things that probably those other places have done is identified a number. <laughs> is, is that something you'd like to see happen in this state as well?
5: Yeah, I think it's something we need to talk about because, you know, saving money doesn't have to just be willy-nilly. Um, There are people who spend their whole life trying to figure out how much is the optimal amount to save for the population you have. I mean, um, here in Wyoming, we have somewhere between 6 and $8 billion saved up in the sovereign wealth funds. And in Norway, they have $1 trillion saved up, just about, and they have 4.5 million people. So they obviously made a decision to put – more into their sovereign wealth per person than, than we have. And we need to understand why and what they're thinking. And then how do you spend it once you, uh, once you decide to invest this big chunk of money? Because, I mean, folks in Wyoming are going to be here a long time, even if the resources aren't. And even if we aren't, and we're leaving a legacy for
6: the future.
1: Mark, your thoughts on, on this type of discussion?
6: Yeah. No, I think that's uh, Jay's you know, kind of put it in a nutshell. It's it's interesting. One of the funds that's coming is Alaska. Alaska has very similar problems to what Wyoming does. They're about a $53 billion fund. They're the largest of uh, uh, the funds that uh, are domestic and uh, they've got a $4 billion shortfall in their budget. They're trying to figure out what to do. Of course, people know that in Alaska they give distributions out. They call it truck months. Every year there's a certain amount of money that comes back, and now they're trying to figure out how to balance their budget, and maybe that's not something that they're going to be able to do. So a lot of of different funds are dealing with these kinds of problems, and and I think Jay and I talked, uh, oh, it's been about two years now that we've been talking about getting – Peers together in a room and looking at different challenges and it, it um, and how to how to address them and I think this year was the year that uh, it, it became absolutely critical that we do that.
1: When when you talk about these these types of funds and I'll, I'll start with you, Mark, are are you talking mostly at focusing our attention on the permanent minimal trust fund or are you talk about everything, including the rating day account?
6: Well, I think uh yeah, you know Wyoming we we often talk about 19.5 billion dollars and everybody has the impression that there's just this big sort of sock of change that we you know can can use in different ways, but of course you've highlighted the point that the permanent mineral trust funds about a 7 billion dollar fund and that's different from what we use to run the state. Uh and what we use to run the state is in is in uh, that's where the rainy day account sits, and they have different investment um, portfolios. They have different uh, approaches to um, their spending policies, and so on. And and this is an effort, really. And I we're we're actually uh, there's a piece of this that is kind of uh, for peers only, uh, and we're bringing a bunch of our legislators in to actually take a look at. They've got these challenges. You know, you see every month we have another sort of downward uh, revision and what we expect for revenues and and some anticipation of what this means for the um, for the portfolio and what it should deliver. And so we're trying to get all of that put together.
1: Jay, when you look at this issue, I've, I've talked with economists over the years and it'd be interesting just to get your thoughts on this. Is it better to have, I mean, continue to try and save as much as you can, build up all these funds? Is that the smartest thing the state can do?
5: Well, I guess... There's sort of two views. One is to save nothing and just transfer all the the wealth, all the mineral wealth, right, to people and let them invest it. Um, That can work if all the money stays in state. Uh, There's also this tendency to decide that, well, we have to pay for our own public goods here in Wyoming. And so, yeah, we are going to need this permanent mineral trust fund to be able to generate a flow of resources for the long run. And at that point, the question is, how much? And you're not going to put everything into it because, you know, you do need to consume some of the rents to, to, buy, to pay for the things we need today. And so part of this is, you know, how large should the fund be relative to the size of the population? We got to think about the scale. We got to think about the role, what we want to use for it, how we're going to spend it, how we're going to invest it, how our state economy cannot be totally dependent on natural resources and if we want to slow down the boom and bust and how much risk are we willing to take as a state and how much transparency can we provide the folks who are interested in the permanent mineral trust fund i mean it's a it's sometimes permanent mineral trust funds that like we have or sovereign wealth funds in general are called just big dumb money <laughs> because you get a pot of money and you're not sure what to do with it and part of this is not to, is to get over That sort of view that we're just going to put it in a sock. That no, we have a strategy, and here's how we can actually um, uh, sort of smooth out the consumption of public goods in the state of Wyoming.
1: Some of our listeners are probably yelling at the radio, talking about the rainy day fund, and and I know you probably, Mark, uh, get letters and emails about that. It's raining. Mm -hmm. We should use that. But but should this strategy go towards something like that too, Jay? Where where, we we actually have an amount of money that we, and and we know what we really should have in the bank? Oh,
5: yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, it's, it's a discussion and it's a, definitely, it's a political discussion. And we're trying to bring in people who have been wrestling with this from all around the world who've, you know, they may not have answers, but they have asked hard questions that perhaps we haven't asked the same way. And hopefully by the end of these uh two days everyone is going to have a bigger and broader and more educated perspective on just what we need to do and how we need to do it in terms of being able to balance the funds versus what we want for the future versus what we need today
6: yeah and bob you know part of what i was thinking about is jay was saying that you know wyoming's been through this before uh, a couple of times, and uh, we kind of know what we've done before. But this is an opportunity really to look at people that have been in the business for a little bit longer than us and bigger, uh, and, and maybe have some of their ideas come to the table too.
1: Now, Jay, you're going to have a public forum, and this is going to be Wednesday night, 6 o'clock uh, till 8 on August 24th at the Jackson Hole Center for the Arts. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what you'll be doing there?
5: Right. Uh, so we've got five panelists, um, Adrian Orr from New Zealand, Khalid Alswiam from, uh, he's at Harvard, Stanford, but he also ran Saudi Arabia's fund for quite a while. Alexa Lam is from the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong, and she also was in charge of their uh, monetary policy and uh, Securities and Futures Commission there, Alex um, Angela Rondell, she's from the CEO of the Alaskan Permanent Mineral Trust Fund, or their permanent Mm. fund. And then Sam Wills from University of Oxford, who's made this his career, studying funds all around the world and the lessons learned. And this is open to the public. Uh, They're going to present their views. Kathleen Hayes from Bloomberg Television, if you've seen her on TV, she's a pretty popular uh, financial advisor. And um, if... uh, people are interested. They, I, we'd love to have them come to the Jackson Hole Center for the Arts at six o'clock and participate and try to educate themselves and try to ask some hard questions that uh, we can think about.
1: Jay Shogren, always nice having you. Mark Gordon, thank you so much for stopping by.
0: After our break, we'll chat with Wyoming Game and Fish Chief Game Warden Brian Nesvik about grizzlies and get an auditory illustration of just how fast the coal market has dropped. That's coming up on Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards.
1: And I'm Bob Beck. The Wyoming Game and Fish Department continues to put the finishing touches on the plan for how Wyoming will manage the grizzly bear. This week, Game and Fish commissioners voted to approve a three-state agreement concerning how Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana would manage grizzlies when they come off the endangered species list. Wyoming Game and Fish Chief Game Warden Brian Nesvik joins me to provide an update on where those delisting efforts stand.
2: There's still a, another document called the conservation strategy that, that needs to be finalized, and we're right in the middle of doing that now. Um, we expect that to probably be done sometime around September, October, and then the Fish and Wildlife Service um, continues to tell us that their goal is to have a final delisting rule done by the end of the calendar year.
1: So what's that conservation document and, and what what are you considering in that?
2: So the, the conservation strategy is, is something that was in place the last time grizzly bears were delisted and really what it does is it recognizes the um, agreements and the um, mutual um, all of the things that the, the different agencies involved in grizzly management and the greater Yellowstone ecosystem have agreed to to work together on with with regards to grizzly bear management once they are delisted. The conservation strategy is strictly a a document that's focused on post-delisting grizzly bear management. So, for example, some of the the, uh, agencies that are involved there are uh, the US Forest Service, Yellowstone Park, um, all three states, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, um, local government representatives from each of those states, and uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service. So kind of all of those groups come together and, and develop this document that really outlines post listing management, and and they call it the conservation strategy.
1: So the, the last time there was, a, as I recall, there was a lot of education on how people might avoid conflicts with grizzlies i know i know you did some different things uh up in park county to maybe suggest that people not have fruit trees or those kinds of things well will that be a big part of this and, or, and and also what are maybe some of the other key points that, that'll that be part of that
2: you bet so you, that's a, that's an excellent point and that's one of the most important components of the conservation strategy are those things that um that reflect our information and education efforts um, those haven't stopped just because grizzly bears aren't delisted we continue to have a fairly robust program now where we um, provide education to folks to help them um, work and recreate and live with grizzly bears and um, so you know I think that you know that will certainly continue and this document does outline um, how important that is other things that are in there are um, you know, agreements between all involved about the protection of habitat in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So the federal land management agencies have made some major commitments in this strategy to basically preserve those habitats where grizzly bears currently live, um, you know, into the future to ensure that they they continue to be recovered. Um, there's population management components to the plan where all three states have um, have placed some level of detail in the, in the strategy about how, um, grizzly bear management will occur, uh, post delisting and, and what components may be there. And then also, um, conflict management. So when a grizzly bear gets into trouble, um, comes in conflict with humans. There's, uh, there's components of this plan that, that, uh, that talk about that. And then, you know, probably one more thing that's pretty important is, is it, it outlines a, um, currently there's a committee that works on this, that's made up of all those entities and, and this conservation strategy, um, outlines, uh, you know, a continued commitment from all of those people to continue to work on this committee, um, to execute and implement the, the conservation strategy.
1: Do you have, like, a place where you want the grizzlies to be, um, you know, in the state? I remember when we first went down this road many, many years ago, there was a the thought that they should just pretty much stick in northwestern Wyoming. Is that still the plan, and, and how would you accomplish something like that?
2: Yeah, so the the uh, there is an, an area that's outlined, and it's it's based in a— um, a scientific as well as a social analysis of so those areas in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem where where um, grizzly bear habitat both biologically and socially is suitable, and they call that the in this new recovery or this new plan they call it the demographic monitoring area and so to summarize where that it 's basically a big line that goes you know kind of down the cody front um, down to the south end of the wind rivers and uh, and back up to the to the north and west of the state line and it 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 basically um all of our delisting documents now and everything that all the the management that's being discussed now is management that would occur within that that demographic monitoring area now there are grizzly bears that exist outside of that um, but the, the the main area of focus for grizzly bear occupancy would be inside of that demographic monitoring area um, you know the plan doesn't say that bears won't exist outside that line, but there's certainly more flexibility in um, in management for grizzly bears that are outside of the, the demographic monitoring area.
1: Would, would the process be if if you saw one in the big horns or something like that that you'd you'd move it?
2: You know, we're we're not interested in a bear being uh, grizzly bears being in the bighorns, and so yeah, you know that <laughs> that would be one of the options. Is to if we had grizzly bears show up in a place where we know they're just going to be in conflict and and have problems, we could we could move them. Or you know, the commission certainly has the prerogative um, down the road after delisting to consider hunting seasons.
1: Mm-hmm. How how likely is that right now?
2: Well, the the thing I know for sure. Um, I don't know exactly how the commission will decide on that, on that issue, but I know that the discussion will occur. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm certain that the discussion will occur. These um, animals have been recovered for well over 10 years and, and um, we are lucky to have a, a robust population of them. And, and I know there are certain constituencies that are interested in that. So I know that the commission will definitely have the discussion and where they'll fall out. Um, you know, they'll base that on, recommendations from the department that are still yet to come and also from public comment.
1: Brian, always nice talking with you. Thanks for the update.
2: Hey, you bet, Bob. Take care and have a great weekend. Brian Nesvik is the Chief Game Warden
1: for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. As Wyoming faces a primary Tuesday, energy has been on people's minds. The state's energy industry is in the midst of a historic downturn. In recent weeks, candidates for a variety of offices, including those running for the U.S. House of Representatives, have offered up their thoughts on what's keeping down the energy industry. Our energy reporter Stephanie Joyce joins us now to fact-check some of those claims Stephanie, common refrain is that the federal regulations are what's keeping down coal, oil, and gas. Let's hear what the U.S. House candidate Leland Christensen said at a debate hosted by Wyoming PBS and the Casper Star Tribune. We have the means and we have the assets and we have the ingenuity, but once again we see federal regulation getting in the middle and tamping down and holding down our energy industry. So is that true? Is federal regulation holding down the energy industry?
4: Let me start with oil and gas. I think you could argue that oil and gas have largely been victims of their own success. Fracking, horizontal drilling have unlocked huge reserves of oil and gas, which has flooded global markets. In 2015, the US was the world's largest producer of oil and natural gas. And you know that, in turn, has depressed the price for oil and natural gas. And that means there's been a slowdown in drilling now you know a lot of critics point out that most of the recent oil and gas development has been on private, not on federal lands, and that is definitely true. Um, but it's not necessarily as simple as just saying you know the federal government is blocking oil and gas development. The biggest shale oil fields are in Texas and North Dakota, and neither of those states has a lot of federal land. Looking at the big picture, either way, it doesn't appear to have hurt overall production. Now for coal. Um, Certainly, uh, federal regulations have had an impact, um, but the largest single factor in coal's current downturn has been that enormous amount of cheap natural gas. Coal and natural gas compete for market share in the electricity sector, and you know while coal has been affected by federal regulations like regional haze and the mercury and air toxic standards. That's only part of the story. The biggest threat to the coal industry, the Clean Power Plan, which is a federal regulation, is currently on hold. The Supreme Court stated. it. So I think it's hard to argue that that is having a big impact at this point.
1: One possible solution floated to help the struggling coal industry has been increasing exports to Asia. Here's U.S. House candidate Darren Smith at that same debate on why that isn't happening.
7: We need to open up those ports in Washington. The, the Millennium Port in Washington, they want our coal to go through there. Uh, they're 10% unemployment. The only thing stopping them is the state, so we've got to fix that. So uh, that's the issue. If we got to get, let the free market roll, coal will take care of itself, but we've got to pull the government off their backs, and that's what we'll do.
1: So what about that? Is government what's holding back coal exports to Asia?
4: There is certainly a lot of opposition to coal exports on the West Coast, as uh, Darren Smith mentioned. There's no doubt about that, Um, but I wouldn't say that is the biggest factor at the moment. The biggest factor is that international coal prices have absolutely collapsed in recent years. That's because of a slowdown in China's economy, global efforts to fight climate change and air pollution. In 2011, thermal coal, which is the kind that's used in making electricity, was selling on the international market for $130 a tonne. Today, it's selling for half that, $65 a ton. It's just not profitable to export coal right now. In fact, one of Wyoming's largest coal producers, Cloud Peak Energy, which actually does have access to shipping capacity at an export terminal in Canada, they've been paying not to export coal. So let me explain that a little bit. Um, The company has a contract that it will ship a certain amount of coal, but they would lose so much money exporting that coal right now that they're instead paying not to ship it. And so, for at least right now, you know, even if coal companies did have access to a dozen ports on the West Coast, um, it's pretty unlikely that they would be exporting coal at current prices. Now, of course, that could change. You know, coal prices do go up and down, and there are some signs that the international market is is recovering. Um, but even then, you know, Wyoming is going to be competing with Australia and Indonesia in the international coal market. And those places are a lot closer to China and India than Wyoming is.
1: Donald Trump has said in recent days that if he's elected in November, he'll bring back coal jobs. Liz Cheney said something similar at that Casper debate.
4: I
0: think the fundamental obligation of Wyoming's representative uh, in the House of Representatives is not to look for alternatives or for government programs um, long term to help our coal miners.
4: It's to make sure that our coal industry survives.
1: Can Republicans bring back the coal industry?
4: I think there's absolutely no doubt that Congress and the President certainly play an important role in setting the direction of energy policy in this country. Um, but you know, markets play a huge role too. And as I've mentioned, you know, extremely cheap natural gas. Um, is affecting the coal industry. There's also you know flat electricity demand. Um, there's the shrinking go- global markets. There's you know utilities making independent decisions about the energy mix of the future. And I think all of those things combined are probably going to have a bigger effect on the coal industry than federal policies. You know, for example, Texas is the largest consumer of Wyoming coal, um, but many of the state's coal-fired power plants are heading for retirement, and those. Those coal-fired power plants in Texas are being replaced by gas and by solar and by wind turbines. And you know, that isn't a decision that's made at the federal government level. Those are decisions that are being made by privately owned utilities in the state of Texas. And so, you know, 250 plus coal plants have already closed in the past five years. Those coal plants are not going to be coming back, no matter who is elected in the fall. On a recent quarterly earnings call, the CEO of Cloud Peak Energy, Colin Marshall, basically said just that. Let's hear him.
2: If you go back to 2011, we shipped
1: 96 million tons, and now we're looking at 60. So, you know, the reality is there's less coal being burnt in the U.S., and we're adjusting to that.
4: And it's not just cloud Peak that's saying that. Robert Murray, the CEO of Murray Energy, the nation's number three coal producer, told Taylor Kirkendall, a reporter with SMP Global Market Intelligence um, that he doesn't think coal will ever be a thriving industry again. you know so to summarize, you know if Donald Trump, if the Republicans win in November, um, they could certainly you know stop or severely delay some federal regulations uh, like the clean power Plan, which would definitely help stop. Uh, the coal industry's recent dramatic downturn. um, But there are a lot of other forces at play that are largely outside of the control of Congress and the executive branch, as, you know, I think most free market proponents would argue they should be.
1: Stephanie Joyce covers energy for Wyoming Public Radio. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Bob.
0: Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. Wrapping up the show, we'll hear why last year's poor football season is no reason to despair and discuss the history of cowboy music. This is Open Spaces.
1: Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck.
0: And I'm Melody Edwards. It's safe to say that 2015 was a terrible year for the University of Wyoming football team. A slew of key injuries, coupled with inexperience on the defensive end, saw the Cowboys finish with a horrific 2-10 and record. The good news is that Wyoming returns 18 starters from last year's team, and the hope is that they will be much improved. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports.
1: Optimism is always high during the first week of training camp. During the annual media day, middle linebacker Lucas Waka pronounced that the Cowboys were much improved.
2: As you can tell, a lot of people are bigger, uh, faster, uh, I mean, we look like a totally different team out there. You know, how young we were last year is uh, definitely key. We had a good uh, spring, good, uh, good summer, and I think that uh, coming to fall camp, was a, uh, we were on a positive note.
1: As Waka points out, the Cowboys were awfully young last season, starting more freshmen than all but six other teams in the nation. And that translated into some ugly losses. Wyoming lost by two touchdowns or more eight times. The biggest loss was a 38-3 pounding at the hands of San Diego State. Waka says teams took advantage of their youth, and he'd like some payback.
2: We owe a lot of people a lot of stuff this year.
1: Andrew Wingert shares that mentality. The safety was recognized as one of the top freshmen in the country and led Wyoming in tackles. Wingert says as difficult as last season was, it taught him a lot.
2: It really was a, a life changer. You know, it really changed my outlook on, you know, how I play the game. You know, you can't just like high school go out and win every game just by stepping on the field. You know, you gotta prepare, you gotta do all the little things.
1: Wingard admits there were times early in the season when the defense was lost, but now the defensive coaches will have confidence to take more risks, and he thinks that will pay off. The Wyoming player who had a great 2015 was running back Brian Hill. He set the school record for rushing yards in a season, and he is being touted as one of the top backs in the nation. This season, Hill is on pace to break the all-time Wyoming record for rushing yards, but all he is focused on is winning.
6: I hate losing. I hate losing more than I love winning. So I'm always depressed after every game we lose and stuff. So hopefully we can get some, get a few wins and get to a bowl game this
1: year. Do you see a, a momentum thing if you guys could get off to a fast start?
6: Oh, for sure. You know, we got off to a very slow start last year, and I think they just weighed on a few guys' um, side keys.
1: Head coach Craig Bull is in his third season. He's glad the team is more optimistic, but he says it's time to play better.
3: You know, everybody asks me, okay, what do you need to do to be more competitive? we got to look more competitive. we got to be in games at halftime for where you're going in and since geez, we're three possessions down.
1: But Bull has already seen improvement, and a lot of that has to do with experience.
3: Certainly our players' understanding what they're doing has an impact. Uh, we're more athletic. Um, we're not as experienced at a couple of positions, but all the other positions were much more experienced.
1: They might even have a reliable quarterback. Wyoming has struggled at the position during Bowles' first two years, and sophomore Josh Allen might help. Allen broke his collarbone in the second game of the season last year, but in the short time he was in there, he made plays. Allen is mobile and possesses a cannon for an arm. Receivers say he throws it harder than anyone they've come across, and he also has some swagger. But Bull says it's going to take a bit more time for him to play the way they want him to.
3: He, you're right. He possesses what you're looking for. He's 6'5", he's 225 pounds, he can throw it forever. Uh, but he needs to take coaching.
1: Like a lot of quarterbacks with strong arms, he takes risks. Risks that his coach will try and knock out of him.
3: You know, sometimes I look and say, hey, you throw the ball across the field. Probably not a good thing's going to happen. And uh, did that a couple times, which rankled me a little bit. Uh, but we can coach that. And he's gonna, that's what I'm talking about. He just needs to take some coaching. Good, good, good,
1: good. Because Brian Hill is such an explosive running back, defensive teams trying to bring more people to the line of scrimmage in an effort to stop him. Recent Wyoming quarterbacks have not had the ability to throw and get them out of that defense. Allen says if the defense has tried that on him, he'll throw it over their heads for big plays. He says he loves the fact that Wyoming was picked to finish last by the media.
2: You know, we want people to sleep on us. We want to surprise a lot of teams, and I know that's what, what's going to happen.
1: Wyoming opens its season September 3rd against Northern Illinois. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck.
0: There's an old joke from the movie The Blues Brothers.
1: Uh, what kind of music do you
0: usually have here?
7: Oh, we got both kinds. We got country and western.
0: But it turns out there is a difference between country and western. Musicologist Ariel Downing is giving a presentation on cowboy music later this month at the Britain Museum in Bighorn. As Downing explained to Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer, the countryside of the term has its roots with southern Appalachian hillbillies. The western half of the term has to do with the cowboy image that generally replaced the hillbilly in the 1930s
9: and 40s. And country music depicts rural values, It's kind of self-deprecating, down-to-earth topics. Oftentimes it can tell a story or paint a scene. Sometimes it depicts homesickness for especially one's southern roots, or if you're an urban resident, it depicts homesickness for one's previous life in the country. Cowboy Western music is specifically the Western half of the term, including songs related to the American cowboy, the American West, and life out West.
7: Now, cowboy songs or Western music was originally a folk tradition, music that sprung up around these communities in the West.
9: It did, starting with the Spanish influence in the the South and West.
1: Out in the West Texas town of El Paso I fell in love with a Mexican girl
9: A number of the cowboys that came north on the trails were Latino. Uh, A number of the cowboys were African-American, especially after the Civil War. A number of them were American Indians, but a good number of those were veterans returning from the Civil War. And those people uh, had moved from the southern Appalachians.
7: What about instrumentation for these songs
9: uh, originally? On the trail, it was very much a cappella, unaccompanied singing.
3: Well, come on, you cowboys, I'll sing you a song. Stay back from the wagon, stay where you've been
9: If the cook allowed instruments to take up valuable space in the chuck wagon, they were small instruments. Most of the cowboys, to be honest, were young men or younger men and couldn't afford to own a musical instrument, and musical instruments are rather fragile. So that guitar thing is a myth. The pictures you see about guitars around the campfire probably come from permanent camps toward the end of the trail drive era. Harmonicas were often found because they fit in the cowboy's pocket.
7: So, Ariel Downing, it sounds like the image that we have of the cowboy and the cowboy song is not necessarily an accurate 19th century picture. It's more of a nostalgic image from... When Western music entered the commercial realm in the first half of the 20th century.
9: And it came from mass media, such as films and recordings that were accessible from coast to coast, uh, sheet music that everyone could buy. The cowboy figure became highly romanticized during the early film era, the silent film era, and there had to be some songs that went to that film. And those songs were second-generation, what I call second-generation songs, and they were written for the commercial markets. So how did
7: the music change as it moved from being a folk tradition to a more commercial venture?
9: The topics ranged from a nostalgia for a past that once existed, Roy Rogers and the Sons of the Pioneers singing around the campfire. All
3: day I faced a barren waste without the taste of water cool
9: you know, singing about the trail drives, well, that didn't happen on the trail drives, but it was nostalgia, and a nostalgia for a mythical past that never even happened. But that kind of thing sells sheet music, it sells records, it sells films. I think everybody has some nostalgia, and memory fades with time, and I think we all have a nostalgia for for the the past and the way things used to be and how great it used to be. It may not have been that great, but our nostalgia thinks it was.
7: And then how did the music industry in Nashville change country and Western music?
9: Performers in the 30s and 40s and 50s, they started to wear cowboy hats and boots rather than overalls and straw hats, which was the hillbilly. Even country music singers who were not Western at all adopted that Western look, the cowboy look,
2: her eyes were blue, her hair was all beneath.
9: For example, Hank Williams, who was miles and miles ahead of his time. He was, he was an Alabama cotton farm boy, and he didn't identify as a hillbilly, though, because those movies were so popular, that look was so popular. He, he identified as a drifting cowboy, and he dressed accordingly, along with many, many, many other performers for decades. And that trend is just now starting to disappear. I'm seeing in recent decades, I'm starting to see country performers who wear ball caps. They don't wear even the black cowboy hats. And the term is now becoming country music. And I wonder if the image of the country performer has come full circle, perhaps aligning more closely with that of the earlier hillbilly performers. Country music, I think, is re-identifying with the South, and that's not a bad thing. It's just the cowboy image is is going away.
7: So what then is the fate of Western music?
9: I think it's become its own market, a niche market, if you will. It's not as big as the country market, but there's a great deal of interest in in the American cowboy, both the historical, uh, the movie cowboy, and the modern cowboy.
7: And speaking of which, Cowboy singer-songwriter Dave Munsick will be joining you to perform the musical examples for your upcoming presentation.
9: Right.
3: Went to the sand today to try a horse, I thought they'd have what I'd been
0: looking for. And, and I could have used recordings, but I thought it would be much more fun to include live music. Ariel Downing's presentation, Canyons and Crescendos, Music of the American West, takes place Thursday, August 25th at the Brinton Museum in Bighorn. She spoke with Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer. Thanks for joining us for Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the program or want to hear one of our stories again, you can find them at our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. There
1: you can also explore old shows, pitch us stories for future ones, and link to our podcast that is also available on iTunes. Anna Raider is our web editor.
0: We also invite you to visit us on Facebook, and all of our reporters can be found on Twitter.
1: Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming. Public Radio News.